don't have to make all the mistakes in your life yourself. Learn from others, lean on others. I think the other big important piece of the puzzle is quantity. Really removing yourself from the, those frontline facing relationships, that's what creates time freedom. Well, Jessica, I'm excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Thank you, it's so nice to be here, Samuel. Most certainly, every entrepreneur has an interesting story of how they overcame obstacles to become an entrepreneur. I'm sure you have some very similar stories. So can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey of becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm happy to. So I was not born to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't the kid like selling lemonade on the street corner, like that typical entrepreneur journey. Actually, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. So on my dad's side, my grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, all entrepreneurs. My dad was not. Mm -hmm. um, so my grandfather had a very successful line of pharmacies when my dad was growing up and he missed the window to sell the business and ended up having to sell the business for like pennies on the dollar. And because of that, my dad saw this up and down of what it was like to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner. And he became convinced that, you know, working for the man, working in a big corporate company, safe job was really the way to go. Mm -hmm. So that's how I was raised. Go work for a big company, you'll be safe and secure, and everything will be taken care of. So that's what I did. My first uh, couple careers were with very, very big corporate companies. Uh, mm -hmm. My last corporate job was with the largest real estate developer at, at, on the East Coast, mainly actually probably one of the largest in the, in the country. And mm -hmm. uh, I took that job in 2008. We were funded by Lehman Brothers. So we all know how that story ends. Mm -hmm. And that was my epiphany that... You know, my dad, as great as he is, he wasn't right in the process of corporate jobs are secure. Nothing's mm -hmm. really secure. So that's when I started my first business, when I learned and kind of came to the, the conclusion that the best way to provide security for myself was to depend on myself. Mm -hmm. So I started my first company with my now husband when I was 25 years old. We were in the wine industry, did that business for about three years before we sold and exited and then mm -hmm. transitioned into the world we're now in now, which is uh, small business mergers and acquisitions and exit planning. Mm -hmm. So was that a uh, winery business, was it like a passion or you just, just uh, found an opportunity and said, okay, let me, uh, let me get into this. What was the reason behind that business? Idea? Yeah, I, I kind of call it my early life crisis, right? <laughs> so I started working for, from a really young age. I took my first uh, full-time job in corporate when I was a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. um, so by the time we hit that layoff, I was kind of done with the corporate world. And we had a friend that owned a wine retail shop and he dealt in like high-end wine and collector-based wine. I was like, you know, but it'd be really fun to drink wine all day and travel to wineries all around the world. This sounds like fun. So that's about as much thought <laughs> went into that business is this looks like fun. And that's how we got into that industry. We were lucky enough to get in the right time and carve the right niche that we did well. But I, I do call it my early life crisis. It's like, I just want to drink wine and travel the world and have fun. And mm -hmm. it was fun for a few years. So you had, obviously, your family had businesses. You've seen that and you learned that your grandfather couldn't exit in the right time. So he ended up selling it for undervalue. And then you went on to work for the corporate world and, and it wasn't very safe for you. And then you ended up starting a company. What made you think you were prepared to actually go now help other companies to exit? Yeah. So when we sold our wine businesses, so it was, there was basically three businesses under one umbrella and we sold them in tranches, but the biggest one we sold first mm -hmm. and we sold that through a broker. We were very lucky that we found, he found us a buyer uh, for full price, but he kind of left it at that. 
So we had to go through the full due diligence process around. We ended up basically doing our entire deal ourselves um, Mm -hmm. with just help from our attorney. So when we um, showed up to the closing table, I hadn't seen him in six months, the broker. Hmm. And that was kind of an epiphany of like, I think this could be done better. And I think based on my background, my husband has a very similar story with his parents and grandparents and their businesses. And I think, I think we've got the right background for this. So we saw a niche and we saw an opportunity there. We started in the business very young compared to our colleagues who are 29 at the time. And we, at first we're like, we're, we're just going to see how this goes and maybe we'll find our next opportunity through listing businesses for sale. And then we fell in love with the industry and here we are more than a decade later, still doing the same thing and enjoying it every day. Yeah. So I'm seeing the trend now more, more than ever. There's a lot of exits happening. People try to build a company and get it to a certain revenue size, especially in some sort of a recurring revenue model. And then they're like flipping and then they keep doing it. Right. So that's a, a new fashion, I would say. But most entrepreneurs are getting into it, myself included. We were not even thinking about exit. We we're just thinking about survival. So yeah. how, wh- how do you prepare entrepreneurs even just to start to have this as part of their overarching strategy and not just like, oh, I'm getting to an age that I have to think about maybe a transition plan? Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a great question, Samuel. It's actually what I talk to entrepreneurs out about most often. So most people don't have an exit plan or an exit strategy, that flip mm-hmm. strategy. That's, that's the minority, right? Mm-hmm. Most people get into business because they do something really well, and then they have the opportunity to start a business or they're, they see an opportunity in an industry and they just want to provide for their families. Now, the truth is every single one of us will exit our business. So a line I use very often, my mentor and I use it together, is you're going to exit one of two ways. You're going to walk out the door with your head held high, or you're going to get carried feet first. Mm. But either way, none of us gets out of this life alive, so you will exit your business, period, Mm. right? The second thing I share with people is that when we're working with people that are selling their businesses, 95%, so more than 9 out of 10 of the sellers are not exiting for the reason or the time frame they thought. Mm-hmm. So even those people that have these pretty plans and I'm going to build this company and exit 10 years, most of them will exit sooner and for a different reason than they think. What we forget, I think, as entrepreneurs is that we are people and humans first. And often those things, those human things, trump our business plans. Mm-hmm. So. Number one reason people sell businesses is for burnout. Then we have family disagreements, family troubles. Then we've got a change of opportunities. Um, That could be like a relocation of a spouse or things like that. Illness, death, the sell because it was the plan is not even in the top 10 of reasons Mm -hmm. that people sell. So I start with just that mindset shift of that. Maybe you didn't start your company to sell or exit it, but you will do that. So the sooner you start thinking about what your exit options are, and in my company, we have a conversation in our strategy meetings, our annual planning every year, and we say, okay, what's the target we're shooting for? What's the exit target we're shooting for? Maybe it's 10, 20 years down the road, right? And then what's our options this year? Like, what if something happens this year that forces an exit? What are the options on the table? And if we're positioned that we can exit or sell our companies any given year, that we've created a much safer future for ourselves than if we're relying on some far away 10 year plan. Sounds good. Yeah. So obviously, you know, like a lot, everybody goes into a business with a plan of exit being the strategy, which I think more so happening in the SaaS space, because I play in the SaaS space with a lot of companies 
And we also saw, like you mentioned, the story of your grandfather kind of selling the company undervalue. Uh, we have some manufacturing clients during COVID had to exit because they were not prepared from a financial standpoint to stay alive. Yeah. And especially with the the short, you know, the supply shortage and everything else, they had some problems there, right? So nobody actually prepares for that, right? Like I even saw like the the most companies sell under value because they were unprepared, right? Yes. So like some some sort of a scenario that happened that was outside of their control and that caused their company to lose its company value. Now all of a sudden they're forced to sell and they sell under value. That happens as well. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of factor that goes into creating company value, and you also have some concepts on how to create more free time for entrepreneurs. So can you elaborate on the the second one, which is like the entrepreneur's dream going into business is, okay, now I have you know time freedom. I'm going to have financial freedom, but that's yeah. usually not the case. So what are some of the things that you've seen to have, you know, work for entrepreneurs to create more time freedom? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually, it's tied together. So mm. the more time freedom you can create for you actually it directly impacts your company value. Because hmm. if you think about it, as you're attracting buyers for your business, you don't, most buyers don't want to wear all the hats that you do, right? Mm -hmm. So if we focus on creating time value for us in the present, we're making more, our companies more valuable over time. So I, it's, you hear it a lot, like work on your business versus working in your business. Like, but what I find is we actually systematically try and remove our clients from different roles in the business, starting with the riskiest roles first. So the first role we recommend to try and get yourself out of either through hiring, delegation, outsourcing is sales. So when people buy businesses, they have two big fears. The first is that when they buy the business, the customers will go away. And when they buy the business, the employees go away. And if you think about it in terms of owner reliance and what you're doing day to day, it's also tying up your time, right? Mm -hmm. If the customers are only willing to do business with you, then you don't have time freedom from your business, right? If all of the employees are coming to you for every single answer, you don't have time freedom in your business. So we focus first on removing ourselves from that customer relationship, sales and account management, and then also frontline employee hiring and management. Those are the two buckets we help clients focus on first. It's a gradual process. It's all about chunking it down. So it's not like today I can decide I'm not going to be involved in sales in my company over time. Like when we first started this process with our business brokerage businesses over 10 years ago, my husband and I were responsible for 85% of the revenue. Mm -hmm. Today we're responsible for less than two and a half percent. It took 11 years, right? Mm -hmm. So it's time. And I think patience is a big key for owners in that. And just like looking at your task list, it's, it's very tactical, right? But if you go through and do a time audit of what you're spending time on about once a quarter and just try and get three things off your plate and just chunk it down over time, but really removing yourself from the, those frontline facing relationships, that's what creates time freedom. Because mm -hmm. when you're working on strategy, um, you know, higher level financial management, we're working on CEO responsibilities. You're not stuck in urgent anymore. You're stuck in important and important can be designed around your lifestyle versus mm -hmm. the other. Understood. So obviously, you know, I mean, if you uh, follow any sort of like a business process systems like EOS or any of the other ones, right? Like scaling up, they all talk about some sort of like an integrator is the, is the title that I think EOS uses and every other system has some similar. So would you recommend having some sort of an operator role be created and implemented first and then have some of those critical function be transferred over or like the reason I ask is because a lot of founder led growth companies are 
sales is usually the founder, right? Like the sales mm -hmm. is driven by that founder or even like the, on the marketing side, sometimes the founder is the face of the brand and they are always the one that creating content and everything else. So it's very hard to like, sometimes just give uh, like out outsource or uh, delegate that function. Uh, so I'm just yeah. curious, what are some other critical hires that might be required to free up the founder, to be able to train somebody else to do some functions that is not that easy to, to delegate? Yeah. So I think the first one is to have a great executive assistant. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's really flexible now with the advent of virtual assistants. So you could start with a great virtual assistant, scale up to a part-time assistant, scale up to a full-time executive assistant. It's funny, my business partner, every time I, I hop on and we have our one-to-ones monthly, he'll say, hey, how's it going with you now? And I'll be like over, overwhelmed. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, tell me what's going on with your EA. Oh, well, we're actually in between EAs right now. And like, I don't know how many times it's been like, Jess, We've had mm -hmm. this conversation, mm -hmm. always have a great EA, like that's your right hand person. And that's, I think the first critical hire. Now, after that, I actually disagree with a lot of systems. The next critical is someone in sales or marketing that's responsible for revenue outside of you. Mm -hmm. And it's often, I think, frustrating to entrepreneurs because in the beginning, you're going to burn through a lot of people, especially in sales to find that right person but it's critical to start working on it in the beginning, because if you don't, you'll never get there. And then the company's revenue will always be reliant mm -hmm. on you. And like I talked about, that's the biggest risk factor. It's not even if you want to exit, but think like, if you want to go on vacation, what if something happens to you? What if you're out for three months, right? If you're the number one sales producer, it completely shifts the direction of the business. So EA first, and then sales is, it would be our next critical hire. Yeah, but I know the trend that we're seeing, right? Companies like, you know, Gary Vee's company where he's the phase, he creates the awareness for the brand and people are buying him as opposed to whatever that company that he represents. So like, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs? And because I'm also kind of guilty of it because I'm kind of the face of our brand, creating content and, you know, face of the webinars and everything else. So that's a role that is very hard to replace in some instances, or at least the entrepreneur thinks that it's a hard role to replace. Yeah. So... so it is really risky. So face of the brand and, and revenue generation is very different, first of mm -hmm. all, right? Like Gary Vee is the face of the brand, but he's not doing all the sales calls, right? Mm -hmm. When the leads come in, that's more of like a rainmaker role than an actual sales production role, right? Mm -hmm. So as things shift, that's the role that I'm in now. Like I am in a rainmaker role. I'm doing this with you today, right? Mm -hmm. But if anybody listens to this podcast and reaches out to me, you're going to be interacting with my team, not with me. So that mm -hmm. rainmaker role is probably the last one that you're going to replace in your company. Now, look, when you make yourself the face of a brand, you do run a risk in an exit, right? And the risk is that if all the leads, all the uh, activity comes in through your rainmaking, when you sell, you're going to have to stay with that company long-term. Mm -hmm. Or if you're lucky, you, you may be able to leave the company, but you're going to have to sell your name and likeness. So one podcast I recommend to everybody is the Bobby Brown episode of Guy Raz's How I Built This. Mm -hmm. So Bobby Brown, for those who aren't familiar, she was in the cosmetics space. She started a very successful cosmetic line based on her name and her likeness. When she exited that business, she had to sell the rights to her personal name and likeness and cannot do business using either of those again. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you achieve the dream and you are very successful, that's the result you have to be okay with, right? Mm -hmm. So over time, like you do remove yourselves from other things. Like I don't, I love Gary Vee. I don't think he's positioning 
that business that he's ever going to exit it, or at least not in the foreseeable future, you may see other people start to come in. I think a really good example is Tony Robbins, right? Mm -hmm. So Tony Robbins, it's obviously been based on him um, his entire life, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to a Tony Robbins event now, and I love Tony's events, I've been to a lot, and I get just as much value as I do like now, as I did years ago. But if you go to Tony's events now, it's not just Tony on stage, mm. right? I'd say it's Tony on stage about half the time, maybe less, but he started bringing in other people to be voices and rainmakers and faces of the brand. And I think that's what you'll see Gary do at some point too, when he gets closer to exit. And that's the same thing that we would do, right? Mm -hmm. Is depending on our time horizon, Today we know, hey, I've got a risk in my company because I'm the face of the brand, I'm the rainmaker, but over time, I'm going to bring other voices in too. So it's mm -hmm. not just Jess doing the podcast, right? If you see my team speak locally now, I used to do all the speaking locally. I do not do that anymore. I've transitioned that to different team members. So it's just like, again, that chunking it down every quarter, get one thing off your plate. So basically to reiterate, you said, if you remove you from the kind of the key critical roles that are super dependent on the founder, you increase the company value. Not only that, you're actually freeing up your founder to go work on more important things as opposed to urgent. Uh, so yes. that's a, one important thing. What other things would you recommend to entrepreneurs, especially trying to create more value and have that long-term horizon uh, look of what the future could look like as a company when yeah when they yeah and we talked about like so i usually bring it up into quantity and quality so we talked a lot about quality right and there's yeah. other things you can do to make your business a better quality business you mentioned recurring revenue there's you're in marketing brand positioning things like there's a whole laundry list on the mm -hmm. qualitative side of what you can do i think the other big important piece of the puzzle is quantity so like it or not more than half of a business's valuation is determined by the quantity of earnings in a business, not revenue. So mm -hmm. does the business provide a return on investment to the owner, which is in the form of profit? So making sure that the business is one profitable, but then has better profit margins than your competitors in the industry. So it's creating more money for you in, in the short term, right? As an owner. But then long-term exit, if you have better margins benchmarked against your competitors, then you're going to achieve a higher valuation than your competitors would too. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times uh, you are tempted to, I mean, when you talk to tax strategies, right? They're always trying to find ways to lower your taxable income and depreciation, all sorts of other tactics, and not necessarily have real big profits to show at the end. So how do you balance that uh, sort of a thinking with, hey, I want to be able to reinvest back into the company or buy an equipment or buy some sort of another asset and continue to grow the company as opposed to just being able to show on the bottom line, hey, I had whatever, you know, double digit profits. Yeah. So I'm not an accountant, so I'll throw that out there. So this is not accounting advice to anybody that's mm -hmm. listening. I'll just share what we do, right? First, there's a lot of ways to reduce your taxable income without having to bury your company in expenses, right? There's a lot of ways to reduce your taxable income on the personal side, investment side. There's a lot of legitimate expense ways you can do it through mm -hmm. investment plans, 401k plans, retirement plans, right? And those are all what we call legitimate or add back expenses. Burying the company with expenses to show little to no profit is not the right way to go about mitigating taxes, right? Mm -hmm. There's also like different ways and you can talk to your accounts about that structurally, having multiple companies and things like 
honestly, we won't get into it, Sammy, but there's mm-hmm. like a thousand different ways to reduce your uh, taxable income without burying, I don't want to call them nonsense, but nonsense expenses mm-hmm. in your business. Now that aside, if you want to sell your company at Sunday, what we always tell people is like, okay, maybe you're saving 30 cents on a dollar today, but I'm not going to be able to get you paid on that dollar in the future on the exit. And that dollar may be worth four to $10 in the future. So you're saving 30 cents today, or you're, let's say you're, you're neglecting, call it $7 in the future to save 30 cents today. That's the trade-off you're making. And most accountants, and there's some very good accounts, our accountant's great. He has the same mindset we do, Mm -hmm. but there are lots of accountants that have a different mindset of like, we need to reduce your taxable burden on your P&L. I encourage people that I talk to, to just have a different, I have a conversation with a different accountant every three years and just see if you can find a better fit for you. Understood. So not just uh, some sort of a short-term gain of, you know, reducing taxes, but obviously thinking about in the long-term, what it, what that value of that dollar today is. So obviously we talked about, you know, some of the things that companies can do to prepare uh, from an exit standpoint, but I'm also curious, I've seen, especially in, in the industry today, there's a lot of acquisitions happening and there's a lot of smaller acquisitions happening, right? And the, the fear that most entrepreneurs have is like, oh, I'm not in a place that I, I can have the financial means to go buy a company. But I'm still, I'm surprised to see there's a lot of acquisitions happening, but that's usually because there's some other creative ways of financing these acquisitions and not necessarily having very big bag, bank balance to, to fund some of those acquisitions. So can you talk to us a little bit about how can entrepreneurs start thinking about growing their business by through acquisition? Yeah, it's a great question. A great point. So I even, when I, I got into, when I bought our first business in m and I thought we had to come up with the cash, right? Mm-hmm. To buy the business and you don't. Typically, you're going to need to come up with somewhere between 10 to 50% cash down payment at the most. There's financing through the Small Business Administration, so SBA. Um, So what the SBA does, you still get your loan through a bank, right? Mm -hmm. But what the SBA does is they guarantee repayment to the bank. So it reduces the risk to the bank when you're going through a business acquisition loan. It's typically what's called a 7A loan. So the bank's incentivized to give you money. So they have to be qualified, right? Both the business you're buying and yourself as a buyer. But typically you'll see the bank fund somewhere between 50 to sometimes even 100% of the purchase price in certain industries. I think the average is around 70 or 80%. So if you look at an average deal structure, you'll have 70% that the bank provides in financing, typically a 20% buyer down payment, and then a 10% seller note. So seller notes are put in place, not usually because buyers or banks don't have the money, but it's to keep the seller incentivized for helping through the transition process. So, and those loans can now be repaid alongside the bank loans and and, and most situations. If a bank won't fund a transaction, oftentimes you'll see the seller take a bigger note. One benefit of the increased interest rates we have right now is sellers like doing seller notes again. I mean, you know, SBA loan rates are between 12 and 14% or something right now. And a seller is like, Hey, I could do it. A seller loan at eight, 9% is better than I can do in the market. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, seller financing is very common in, uh, the, what we call the micro or the main street market. And even to larger deals, like they're called different things. They're called earnouts and structured, structured acquisitions, but it's basically the sellers financing the transaction. So it happens in, I'd say almost all businesses that are sold. And then about 60 to 70% of our buyers will use SBA financing on top of that. 
So yeah. obviously, like I, th I thought the seller note was only like I've heard of the seller financing as an option, but oftentimes if you're trying to get out of the business, you don't necessarily have any interest in keep financing that business, right? So mm -hmm. like, how do you find such opportunities where the seller has the financial means and can afford to wait to get the full payout, right? Like, uh, how do you find such opportunities? Are all uh, sellers, in, you know, kind of motivated to do those things those days because of the higher interest rate? Yeah, well, what I would say is that if you're selling your business, you're going to finance a portion of the transaction. That's just, hmm. I mean, and that's been, I don't even say that's the market we're in. That's just always happened. You're at least financing probably about 10% at the minimum, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of sellers that will say, I'm not going to do seller financing or any form of it. Like we're probably not going to sell the business. That's just mm -hmm. what it is. But as you get into the transaction, there are some sellers that see more opportunities. Seller notes are very secure. I want to say most, and, and on my podcast, we had a, a, an attorney that does seller notes for a living. And she came on and said in like her 30 year career, she's only seen a handful of defaults, hmm. right? So they're actually very secure. And there's a lot of ways with an attorney um, that's probably documenting, put safety nets into it. So a lot of times sellers will come in resistant to the idea. And then when they learn about the process and they learn about the upside, we talked about taxes, there's some tax deferral advantages, things like that it does become more attractive to them, especially if they find out for some reason or another, their business won't qualify for SBA financing. There's very limited reasons that a business does not straight out qualify for SBA financing, but there's a lot of reasons that a bank won't finance it. It could mm. be they haven't been in business long enough. They don't like the industry. It's too small. That's actually a big shock to a lot of sellers is banks usually just want to do larger mid-sized to larger deals. They don't want to do small deals because there's not enough profit in there for them. So we do a lot of seller financing on those smaller size deals. So it is an education process, but um, through that process, a lot of sellers do see the advantages for seller financing. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the the actual value of the companies from the the profits as opposed to the top line revenue. So what is typically kind of the multiples that you can expect uh, for a company uh, based on that, based on the profit? Yeah. It's a hard question. I usually don't answer because it's so varied, right? Mm -hmm. So there's different segments of the, of the M&A market, right? So I, I mentioned the micro and main street market. That's typically businesses that are valued under 5 million. Then there's the middle market, which is companies valued from 5 million to 1 billion, very mm. large market. And then there's a large multinational market, 1 billion and above. Obviously, you're dealing with way different multiples in between all of those. And then you're dealing with way different multiples based on profitability. And then things like time and business quality, all that stuff. All that being said, if you look at the market we play in, which is about 0 to 25 in transactional value, 0 to 25 million, if you take the average EBITDA multiplier across all industries of all time is three times. Hmm. Now the range is like one to 25. So I don't think the average does credence to anything. I think when you see averages for your industry, when you see averages overall of what's happening, I see, I think it's very misleading. And the best thing really to do is if you're curious about your company is, is to have an actual assessment done of the company. They're usually very affordable and it provides much better clarity than just pulling an average off the internet. Understood. Because obviously I know SaaS companies has a much higher multiples, right? Even when some of them are not even reporting any profits, they still are going well over 10 times. So like any, any but, business... But it depends, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on what's going on in the market. Like today in the marketplace today, it's not happening. 
Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I feel like this is one of the big things we always try and get out there is like, it's so it, it really hurts expectations of business owners and sellers to just make assumptions based on what they hear from their friends, what they read from the internet. You have to have real time market data for your industry, your size company and the qualitative factors to have a really good understanding of what the marketability of your company is. Because my company is not the same as my competitors, is not the same as my mentors, and selling a company today versus selling a company in 2021 is not the same either. So yeah, and then also what what the buyer, how much the buyer values or loves that uh, industry or that pro the business as well. So I yeah. know typically, right, any sort of business that has subscription revenue stream has a little bit of a higher uh, valuation, right, just because of the fact that the you're not having to go fish every day to, to eat, right? So you have some sort of a recurring revenue model. So I know from your experience, having worked with uh, all the different businesses, I saw that you have done over 250 million in, in transactions and you know coached over 3,000 business owners. So you've had a lot of exposure to these sort of acquisitions and exits. Uh, so what industries have you seen that has the, the, the biggest interest from a buyer standpoint? Yeah. So it, it's funny. There's like popular industries that come and go, right? Mm -hmm. So SaaS has been popular in the past. It still stay, is popular because of the recurring revenue model, as long as the contracts and the recurring revenue are structured properly. So there's a whole subsection of legal that has to be done on that. Anything that's is similar to that. So financial management, insurance, that's all residual income. So that's been very popular. Property management is the name, although property management is hitting a snag right now because you have a segment of property management for the short-term rentals where a lot of cities are changing regulations mm -hmm. um, that's impacting that industry. So you've got that side, and then you've got what's called like old boring businesses that are really sustainable. So the risk on SaaS and tech and everything like that is it can be reinvented and what you call Uberized very quickly, right? But on like some old boring businesses, like there was a joke I heard uh, somebody talking about AI and robotics and like, well, the last industry that's probably going to be like AI or ro roboticized is like pl a plumber fixing your sink, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so when you look at the long-term viability, those businesses are actually really jumped in popularity in the last three years. So home trades, niche construction, it's just like, for lack of a better term, blue collar businesses that have done well in all sorts of economies and for hundreds of years. And we don't see AI as a threat in those businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So that those, that's probably the most popular segment right now is, is those boring businesses, blue collar businesses. Yeah, I'm kind of happy about that too, because I think we kind of overlook those guys that really work hard to keep America going, right? We don't really give them the value. We always hear about the, the big tech exit that just in five years, they became a unicorn. I yeah. think Cody Sanchez really made the boring industry very sexy lately. She's been always talking about the boring industry. Yeah, she's and she's definitely brought it to the forefront, which I, I bet a lot of her competing buyers aren't super happy about because they thought they had like, you know, they had the, the biggest secret, mm -hmm. but it definitely is like, yeah, she's definitely brought a lot of voice to it in the last 12 months or so. Crazy because I've never looked at a, you know, like a, a laundry mat as a big business. I'm like, I've ever, ever drawn by them. It just looks like an empty place, a waste of time and money. I, I would almost just assume like most people just do their laundry at home sometimes, but in the city area, there's just a lot, lot of money to be made in there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked a lot, right, in terms of the what to look for when you're trying to build a company, what what you can do in terms of if you wanted to, to exit. So obviously you've seen a lot of these companies that you've exited as well. What are some entrepreneurs doing after they have the exit? What have you seen? Some, some sort of a trend? Because most entrepreneurs that I know, they don't like sitting around doing nothing. So what, what have you seen as far as the trend? Yeah, so I think a big trend we're watching demographically is what you're talking about. So baby boomers over their lifetime will own 1.2 businesses on average, Mm -hmm. baby boomer entrepreneurs. Gen Xs are predicted to own six businesses, six different businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Six different industries. And millennials will own eight. So we're, we're watching and we're starting to see this even with the Gen X crowd. The millennials aren't quite there yet, but like this more mentality of buy, build, sell than buy, build, hold, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a big trend we're watching. We're also seeing a lot of really savvy entrepreneurs doing what we talked about earlier is like buying, and this is what private equity does, buying a platform company, then growing through acquisition, getting it to the next level and selling it. Um, we're seeing that done a lot in those blue collar industries. So those are the two big trends I think that are gonna we're gonna watch and are gonna shift as Gen X and millennials become the primary audience of owners of businesses versus baby boomers. Hmm. I actually just recently listened to an interview by Patrick Bed David. I don't know when he actually exited the insurance company. I don't know, maybe it was like not too long ago. Apparently it was in the you know two hundred million dollars or more. And he he believes that his media company that he's building is going to be in the billions of dollars in value. Uh, it's kind of crazy that he's, uh, and then one of the things that he said, maybe, I don't know if you've looked into this, is that Japanese companies have like the, the longest lived companies in the world are in J- Japan. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know that. Mm-hmm. So I've some heard those, that before, yeah. Yeah. So he said most of them are just family owned and they just go from one generation to the next and there's just never a plan of exit. Uh, that's just how uh, the Japanese like to run their businesses. So yeah. what's what's next for you? Obviously, you're you know you're building these companies that you've been at it for eleven years and you've grown it. You kind of removed yours from the revenue generating side and and kind of trying to see the uh, the company scale. So what's the long term plan for you? Yeah, so I launched a new division of our company called Exit Factor. Uh, mm-hmm. I started about four years ago, but really did the official launch back last year. And what we do is based on research that we've done over our, I think we're up to almost like 900 deals now, we know what buyers are looking for and what they're willing to pay more for and pay a premium for. Mm-hmm. So at Exit Factor, what we do is we help position people to increase the value of their business. So they get that time freedom we talked about, but also profitability increase now, and then they're better equipped in the future to exit their businesses. So my role really is to focus on the development of that brand. We're rolling it out within not just our offices, but nationwide, and then eventually internationally too. So that's that's what I'm focused on. I, I think that's where I can provide the biggest impact. You know, one scary stat out there is that eight out of 10 businesses actually go out of business and they're mm. never able to exit. So my big why, my big goal, my BHAG that I'm chasing is I want to get that number down. Mm. I want less than half of businesses to go out of business. So then more than half have the ability to exit. There's a whole trickle down effect. It's not just about us as owners, but if you think about the jobs that are lost, the local community impact that's lost when a smaller mid-sized business closes and or gets absorbed by corporate. There's a lot of trickle down effects. Our whole economy, and, and you mentioned this too, is our whole economy in the U.S. is built on small business owners, is built on entrepreneurs. And if we can't do what Japan did, right? It doesn't have to be the same family, but if we can't have secession in our businesses, 
then it's really going to unravel the framework and the foundation of the U.S. economy. Yeah. And I, I hate to see when I drive by retail stores that are all empty or malls that are pretty empty. And the yeah. same thing is happening in the manufacturing sector. We're in Midwest, so there's just a lot of manufacturing companies, uh, but a lot of them have, have gone. And there's just a lot of Amazon warehouses that are coming there instead of uh, what used to be there, right? It's just a massive million square foot a box uh, <laughs> with a bunch of trucks parked outside. And whereas you used to have, you know, hundreds of manufacturers with, you know, two, three ships and things like that, right? So I think I do believe uh, we need to do a better job of bringing back uh, some of the manufacturing that we lost in this country because manufacturing definitely, when you talk about baby boomers, most of them were in the manufacturing sector. A lot of the yeah. boring businesses were run by uh, those people and the funny thing is most of their children have no interest in taking over those business because it's just not it's just not interesting right like yeah. hey, who wants to be in metal polishing or who wants to be in injection molding because it's just not as uh, interesting so i love the passion that you have so tell me more about this this exit factor so you have some sort of a uh, courses and training what what would people get from actually going through that training program yeah, so it's a uh, it's a program where we start with what's called an assessment of your business to figure out what the business is worth today and then what we do have to do to hit the goals in the future. You're matched with a certified consultant on our team that coaches you through our program. Um, so in that assessment, we're not looking to change everything in a business that's overwhelming to business owners, but what are the three biggest value drivers that we can implement to increase the business value this year? Right. And mm -hmm. so we do that through one to one consulting sessions combined with, you know, back office support through an online curriculum as well. Understood. Well, obviously, you had a lot of success uh, from a very young age. You were able to exit and sell three of your companies and you've uh, helped a lot of companies exit. So knowing all the things that you know today, what, what, what advice would you give the younger Jessica? So the, the biggest advice I usually give on podcasts and the one I'll stick with today is that something one of my friends told me is that you don't have to make all the mistakes in your life yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Or you don't have to learn from all the mistakes yourself. So I think, you know, your listeners that are listening today is as an entrepreneur, like you just don't have time to, to make all those mistakes. So learn from others, lean on others when you're going through a process that you've never been through before, seek the advice of advisors or peers, and you'll be much more successful in the long term than trying to do it all yourself. Awesome. Well, what a great note to end our conversation. Thank you again for joining me and sharing your wisdom. Thanks, Samuel. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.